Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914-1918war.com. In this episode we'll be looking at the shell crisis that broke in on the 16th of May 1915. As always, if you could like, share and say nice things to your friends about this podcast, that would be incredibly helpful. Get the word out. Uh, and uh, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Everything you hold for files is at stake. Nur durch starke Berührung mit der See, wenn wir den für uns nötigen Weltumfang geistigen Ruhe von Gewinn. On the 16th of May 1915, Colonel Reppington, a correspondent for the Times newspaper, published his first article about what was to become known as the Shell Crisis. In the article, he alleged that the offensive against the Auberge Ridge, in the article, he alleged that the offensive against the Auberge Ridge had been unable to achieve its full objectives due to a lack of artillery ammunition. In the Battle of the Auberge Ridge, launched on the 9th of May, the plan had called for the same pattern of bombardment used successfully at Neuve Chapelle. This was a short bombardment focused on German strongpoints, uh, lasting around 30 minutes long with concentrated fire for the final 10 minutes, just before the assault went in. Douglas Haig, commanding the attack, had been warned that the Germans had improved their defensive patterns since the earlier battle, but believed that the same pattern of attack should still work. This was a long-held belief. He had remarked to Reppington at the beginning of the year that as soon as we were supplied with ample artillery ammunition of high explosive, I thought we would walk through the German line at several places. The attack was not a success. The bombardment was simply not long enough or powerful enough to do the levels of damage that were expected, and the continuous waves of fresh troops that were supposed to overwhelm the defences were just not enough. The defensive improvements were sufficient to allow the Germans to hold on to their lines in most instances, and the results from the first day were poor, with 458 officers and 11,000 men being lost. Haig hoped to carry on the offensive the next day, but in the light of such stunning losses, was forced to stop his offensive. In the aftermath of this failure, it seemed obvious that it could be attributed to the lack of artillery, and the quality of the artillery pieces themselves. On the left of the attack, the British experience had contrasted strongly with that of the French on the right. The French had laid down a much longer and heavier bombardment, and it seemed that this had helped them to achieve their immediate objectives. However, this might not have been the full story. Whilst the French had pushed on towards the lower slopes of the ridge, they had then had to halt to bring up reserves and reorganise their troops. Colonel Reppington, who was an approved war correspondent, spoke with Sir John French after the action. French had come to the conclusion that lack of artillery was the root cause. French had observed a small part of the action and was annoyed that he'd just been ordered to send 20,000 shells to Gallipoli to help with the effort there. Drawing conclusions from what he'd seen and venting his anger, he proceeded to give Reppington quite an exclusive. French had previously complained about lack of munitions after the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle and on other occasions, but Kitchener had always reassured Prime Minister Asquith that the problems were not serious and were a possible case of French looking for a reason that wasn't his doing 
why his offences were not tactically successful. Asquith had understandably followed Kitchener's line, after all he was the head of the military forces, uh, and just three weeks before the Oberz Ridge battle had made a public speech denying that there were munitions shortages. This meant that the report in the Times rapidly became a political matter of the highest importance. Colonel Reppington's story hit upon the truth that shell expenditure was very high, could be higher, and that supplies had been patchy on occasions. There was certainly a truth to the story, as there had been supply problems in the past. An example was given by Bombardier W. Kemp, an artilleryman in the run-up to the battle. Next week, the battery was turned out one night to unload ammunition. There was one wagon, and when it was all unloaded, there were ten rounds, and they were all armour-piercing shells from the coast defence batteries. That's all they could give us. We didn't find it reassuring. We thought it was a disgrace. Obviously, ten shells wouldn't go very far in the middle of a bombardment. Although we should probably bear in mind that Kemp was probably a bit grumpy, having been woken up in the middle of the night for no particular reason. In the face of Kitchener's denial, Sir John French sent copies of his correspondence showing his requests for more ammunition to Lloyd George, who headed up the munitions committee, and to two key members of the government's parliamentary opposition. Asquith was torn between Britain's most famous soldier, Lord Kitchener, and the news from France. He realised that part of the problem was that Kitchener was simply in charge of too much, being responsible for the entire military direction of the war, alongside the recruitment and training of the new armies, and many other responsibilities. Of course, as with any complex matter, it wasn't all Kitchener's doing. Continued ideological debates around whether the pre-war system of government contracts to private companies or contracts to nationalised munitions industries would be better hadn't helped. The committee designed to look at munitions supply, headed by Lloyd George, had founded earlier in the year when Kitchener, claiming that he just didn't have the time, withdrew from their meetings. No one person had responsibility for production and manpower was distributed according to a compromise that favoured incumbent suppliers in areas where they were established but offered contracts to new entrants where they were not. Supplies were ordered by a combination of the anticipated usage rates and the capacity of the industry which tended to result in under-orders. The rapid expansion of the army was also undercounted, and the contractors themselves tended to under-deliver. All these factors contributed to a general position of undersupply and informal rationing. Into these problems waded Reppington's article that argued for more heavy artillery armed with more high explosive shells to smash down the parapets and destroy the wire that had thwarted the Orbers Ridge attack. Picking up on the mood, other newspapers piled in, notably the Daily Mail with its article headlined The Tragedy of the Shells, Lord Kitchener's Grave Error. Asquith's government was now in trouble, with Lloyd George, who was no fan of Lord Kitchener, going on the attack. Prime Minister Asquith, convinced by the King that the only way he could save Kitchener's role in government was by relieving him of his responsibility for munitions, acted. On the 9th of June, he created a new Ministry of Munitions, with Lloyd George as its new minister. Lloyd George took control, and shifted the emphasis from that which industry could supply to what the army needed, memorably saying that what was needed was to take Kitchener's maximum, square it, multiply that by two, and when you're in sight of that, double it again for good luck. This was hyperbole, 
but signified the shift towards heavier and heavier bombardments with a greater supply of ammunition for each gun. Armaments were also shifted towards more heavy 18-pounder guns as Lloyd George moved production away from field guns towards larger calibre weapons, with 1,200 more heavy guns being produced. Lloyd George borrowed heavily from the French munitions model, which had been placed on a war footing from the moment the war broke out. He recruited men from industry to work in the new ministry, hiring managers who could respond to the need for greater production, including heavy industry, the City of London and Johnny Walker's whisky distillery. A survey of munition facilities was carried out. A regional organisational structure was established and direct contracts were placed. Over the longer term, national munitions factories were established and, despite rising prices driven by demand, long-term contracts were offered to stimulate demand and develop greater capacity. These changes pushed Britain's munitions manufacturing capability in the right direction, but they were not a magic war-winning bullet, as the British still had a lot of learning to do. To understand the impact of the shell crisis, we need to ask ourselves whether greater amounts of munitions would have resulted in success at Auburn's Ridge, and whether this would have led to further successes, potentially shortening the war. Let's speculate a bit. For the Auburn's Ridge itself, capture of the high ground along the ridge would have been a great success and would have placed the Allies in a better position from which it might have been easier to continue to attack. However, we can't assume that a heavier, longer bombardment would have resulted in this. The German defences were strong, with hidden dips of wire that were unobservable from the ground or the air. Also, the art of artillery fire was still far behind where it would be towards the end of the war, so we have to assume that large amounts of munitions wouldn't have had a clear effect. We also have to assume that if the attack had gone well, the Germans probably would have fallen back in good order and would have counter-attacked successfully, as they were to do over and over again throughout the war. So tactically, I don't think we can assume that more shells would have been game-changing at this point of the war. Now let's consider the longer term. If supply capacity had been ramped up at the beginning of the war, and reorganised to move onto a genuine war footing, certain lessons that the British learnt during the course of the war would have been accelerated. Firstly, if the army had more shells available, they certainly would have tried to use a greater longer bombardment earlier, and therefore would have discovered that they needed to shift to more heavy armaments earlier. One of the lessons of the Somme campaign was that too much shrapnel was fired instead of heavy explosive, and imagine the effect of learning that lesson earlier. Secondly, the way in which the shell crisis transformed from an issue with quantity in early 1915 to an issue of quality in 1916 would have been understood and resolved earlier. As production was expanded, using new techniques, new suppliers and new technologies, so the number of duds, early detonations and other issues began to manifest. These problems, caused by faulty, rushed manufacture of both munitions and artillery pieces, were probably inevitable during such a transformation, so once again, it would have been advantageous to have encountered these problems earlier than happened in reality. Fundamentally, the 1915 shell crisis highlights the fact that Britain still hadn't grasped the enormity of the material might that would be needed to prosecute the war, and anything that could have accelerated this learning process would have been a benefit. Finally, we can't discount the fact that the British military were also on a learning curve. 
they thought they'd be able to break through the German lines and re-enter the open warfare phase that had been ended by the solidification of the front lines into defended trenches. When they found this difficult, it was hard for them to assume that their tactics were wrong. After all, they'd nearly succeeded, right? Problems with shell supply was not the only reality, but was also convenient as it wasn't attributable to the commanders in the field. If you start from a position that your general approach is right, then, when you meet with failure, the root cause must be something outside of your control. Therefore, we have to assume that they needed to get to the point where weight of shellfire had failed in order to explore new tactics that had a better chance of unlocking the front. When we consider it in the long term, I think that the shell crisis marked another turning point alongside the early manpower crises and the difficulties in ramping up the size of the armed forces, where political and military leaders in Britain needed to shift their perspective from business as usual to something new that required new methods. The exposure of the shell crisis helped to move the thinking of the, of the leadership just that one step further on in terms of mobilising industry better and organising better. And therefore, Reppington's shell crisis story has to be seen as a fine example of journalism exposing a real problem with far-reaching consequences. And I guess that's kind of what any journalist would tell you they're there for, isn't it? That brings us to the end of another uh, podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, please like, share, do good things for us. That would be really helpful. And I'll look forward to you joining me on the next episode. So long. Bye.